0: You Guys, can pass these out behind you. This will help.
1: Did we run out? We got some extras <laughs> here. How's everybody doing?
0: Saying that other building's kind of warm and this one's a little cooler, isn't it? It's like. <laughs> So we're going until what? Uh, five fifty. So, yeah. is that correct?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you could go till ten, but I can't guarantee everyone. <laughs> <laughs> i, I was just wondering if I can make it until five. So.
0: <laughs> something wrong with it it was okay we should have shifted I can't Ooh, Patricia does I oh, Patricia does it no, can't can't, go. Go. yeah and we're fine we're fine we just go old school okay and this one's working I don't know he's I got yeah. the man in charge so
1: I'm going to record he's all over it he's all over it
0: I'm just kinda of looking for the drone here to film the session <laughs> Okay, guys, why don't we, we've got, we've got really kind of a compressed time because I don't want to be standing between you and dinner, so. <laughs> that's a dangerous place to be, so uh, why don't we, uh, why don't we dive in? John, you want to pray for us real quick and then we'll go. Let's pray. Okay. Father in heaven, thank you
1: so much for giving back and ministry. Through the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, we
0: speak for him.
1: Father, we will be done here for your
0: glory. Amen. So we're going to go a little old school here. We had a little technical difficulties, but you know, <clears throat> I'm not sure how they handled Pentecost without <laughs> slide projectors and drones and things like this, you know. But um, this is a, actually a version of a um, of a little seminar that I give to the young professionals uh, in industry, and I just you know, and I just thought it might be something that you guys would um, appreciate. So along the way, if there's questions. Uh, let's do that. I'll try to go through here. There's quite a bit of ground to cover, but um, the, the title of it is just professionalism in the new normal and the reason I, I think about Professionalism is that I've watched as I've watched the, the workforce change and I've worked you know, I've kind of seen You know the traditionalists retire the baby boomers come in and retire and the Gen Xers come in and now they're kind of in the at the high end of it and Millennials and now there's even another generation coming in but even as, a, as the generations change, what's actually happening is that the actual structure in the way business and industry, commerce, works, is changing. And so I don't feel like the schools are keeping up with really what the changes are. And while you may be studying your specialization, the skills that you actually need to be a productive employee, a worker or a member of the team, is is a whole different thing that that's typically not taught now there's a couple of reasons why this is changing one is that we're living in a time where um we have unbelievable connection as a result of globalization and and i tell people you know the old saying is that you know now when a uh, when a butterfly flaps its wings in malaysia you know you're going to have a weather event in oklahoma because the world is all connected and there's technological things happening there's economic investments happening you know there's there's political shifts and policies changing that are affecting the whole global um uh, economic market the second thing that i'm i'm really seeing a lot of and i've been talking about it for a while and a lot of a lot of the people in industry haven't seen it at least in the at least in the industry sectors that i'm in is that we're really living in a time of disruptive digital technology you guys are more on the front of it and just kind of live it and see it more than any any place else, you know. But, I mean, I, you've got companies where people feel like they're on the technological edge because they're now starting to use an iPad. <laughs> you know, And I'm thinking, okay, no, no, you know, I was at Macworld when Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone, you know. I saw the first iPhone at Macworld, you know. And, and, and the world is changing. And it's not just that it's the hardware, but the digital technology that's behind it is changing the way organizations are structured way services are delivered and your expectations are changing you know the way you think of how your customer experience should be is different than my generation or the generation before and probably the generation of the people that you're going to go to work for and so you know when i think about how you shop how you call up transportation how you book hotels and Airplane flights, how you interact with one another, you're kind of absorbing as normal things that most businesses don't even think about yet. And there, there's, a, there's a huge curve, and you're going into this uh, into these kind of these companies where they're, they're behind the curve. We had a little bit of a discussion about that, Enoch, right? with your, even your business, that, uh, So I'm saying that these are, these are changing uh, a lot of things. And I, I want to make the point, though, is that a lot of people feel like, well, this is cycles. This has changed. You know, this is like this once before. We've seen this. But I'm telling audiences all over the country that these are not cycles, but they're permanent seismic shifts, that we're not going back to the way business was done in the early 2000s or the 90s or the 80s, or that we are, we are entering a new world, that we've crossed a digital chasm in terms of the way work is done. And, um, and it's gonna change. And, and the way I describe the world is that we call it, a, um, we, I call it a VUCA, VUCA world. I don't know if you've ever heard of the acronym VUCA, V-U-C-A. Um, where I first heard this was just immediately after 9-11. Um, it's been around in the military since the mid 80s, but it really came to the forefront in, in, right after 9-11. And what had happened was that When when the US put the first troops into Afghanistan, what they met was a type of warfare that they'd never seen before. Prior to that, the Pentagon had hundreds and hundreds of staffers that did nothing but write up scenarios for future wars. And so that if that broke out, then they could go and kind of pull down the binder and say, "Okay, that's that war. This is how we fight that. But what was happening was that they were in an era where you had an enemy that was responding in real time and adjusting their strategies and tactics and so you have you know you have tribal leaders using the internet to communicate among themselves and what was happening was that all of the central planning all of the central organization of hierarchy and control from the Pentagon was useless and that the people that were actually developing the strategy and responding to the situation on the ground were 23, 24-year-old second lieutenants riding on horseback with Taliban war, warlords across the, the Afghan mountainside. So into this environment, I had two friends that were young, uh, at that time, captains, that were, had come back from deployment, and they were, they, they, they'd connected, and they were sitting on the back porch of their little house. And, and as they were talking, they were sharing, well, what was it like to lead your company? What was it like to lead your company? And they thought, gee, it would really be cool if we could create a mechanism where all other company commanders in theater could have this back porch conversation. So they put together $500 and created this, this uh, website called companycommand.com where they just kind of shared things. And uh, so if a Black Hawk helicopter went down then, and then the commander of the, of the helicopter would write an after action review saying this is what, what the enemy did, it would be posted. All of the, com- all the company commanders in theater would then respond on the next engagement out, because now they had intelligence about how the enemy was responding. And then back stateside, everybody that was training their com- companies for deployment were adjusting the training here. Well, this thing kind of grew out of hand and my friends ended up on NBC, <laughs> and all of a sudden the Pentagon was saying, whoa, whoa, that's kind of secret stuff, you know. Uh, they shouldn't be out there on the, on the morning news. And so they pulled him back in, but then Nate and, uh, and Tony were pulled aside to develop the next generation of training for the military. And it went on, and, and, and it, was, it was really a cool thing. But what they were describing, they said, was that what we had to do was that we had to have soldiers and an organization that could respond to a VUCA environment. And VUCA stands for this thing. V is is for volatility. We live in a world that's unbelievably volatile. And you think about that. You know, you think about how fast the stock market can go up and down in a day based upon just, you know, just a Twitter feed, you know, a a tweet, you know, by somebody, right? And, uh, And you think about, the the volatility in terms of even left and right in our country politically and so in every every way you see how businesses can you know kinda go from zero to billion dollar market cap overnight and then be gone the next day and so we live in a world where everything around us is unbelievably affected by volatility the second thing the U is for uncertainty there was a time like in the Pentagon planning where you could kind of look at the past and project in the future and say okay I understand the data points and we can understand and we understand what's going to happen. But now we live in a world where there is so much uncertainty you can, the the idea idea that you can predict things is very hard. I mean it's a big push right now in the whole artificial intelligence area because it's all about prediction you know. the fact is we live in a, in a more uncertain world. There's wild cards that can happen, you know, black swans that can happen that can change the, fa- the game right away. The third thing is complexity. Because our world is so much more interconnected, kind of something over the horizon can make a move, and next week it affects you, and you don't even see it. Or you don't know that there, you do something today, and it has an unintended consequence somewhere else in the world. Or in society or in the economy that's how complex our world is and we don't know how to lead in the way of complexity because we typically tend to be pretty direct problem solvers you know and we think just solve that solve that solve that but now we don't know whether we're even solving the right problem and if we solve it if we created a bigger problem that's the kind of the complexity that our world is in and then the then the a stands for just ambiguity because we live in a world where there's a lot of dilemmas you know you think and they're they're almost unresolvable sorts of tensions you know you think okay how do we take care of the environment but how do we also take care of our energy needs and there's a tension sometimes in those sorts of things at a massive scale and so you as, as a person and as a leader you're living in a situation where you're dealing with ambiguity all the time and it used to be really cut and dry. So the VUCA environment is affecting your profession and the the organizations that you're gonna work for. And when you look at it, I'm I'm telling you that there's a lot of confusion about there. And as a result, it's impacting the way the world works. And so what's changed? Well, I think one of the first things that's changed is the nature of work. How many of you that are graduating seek as one of the immediate goals after graduation of getting a job. Yeah, I mean, it's just natural, you think, right? But I'll say here that, and I've been speaking about this now for about 10 or 15 years, that the notion of the job is obsolete. The job comes from a Latin word that means chunk, or Old English that means chunk, and it really was was derived out of the Industrial Revolution where all of a sudden work was chunked up and then you did this on the assembly line, you know, or you did this in the factory. And those were considered jobs. Before that, you were always more like a small businessman, you know, or a craftsman that did everything and then produced something. And what's happening is that Jobs are becoming obsolete because more and more, the jobs not only are becoming replaced by technology, that's what happened when you know, the Industrial Revolution was superseded by a computer, computer and information age, and now in the digital economy, jobs are being uh, displaced, not by technology, by machines, but by software. And you, know, you go to business school to get accounting degrees. And tax degrees, but now you figure out that AI can do it better than a human can. So what does that do to basic white collar jobs that we thought you know you spent four years and a master's degree to get? And uh, and I've talked with companies in the tax field because some of my clients have been in finance and tax, and that, that's that's some of the things that are scaring them because it says you know it 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 it's taking dead aim at the core of our business. So. When I'm talking about professionalism, professionalism used to be that you would kind of gain some sort of knowledge specialty and you would go to work in that and that would be your profession. You would be an accountant, you know, or you would be whatever. But that's, I'm gonna say that in the next five to 10 years, you're gonna see a tremendous displacement in those sorts of things. 65% of the jobs uh, of, of you will work in jobs eventually that don't even exist today. That's, that's kind of what the predictions are. And so, you know, you're thinking, okay, what, what am I preparing for myself, you know, preparing myself for both as a believer, but then just, I mean, I've, I've just spent all this time, spending all this money going to school, you know, and what did I get? So when I, think about, when I think about preparing yourself in terms of uh, your profession, what I want to do is just give you some suggestions in terms of how you have to own your own development as a professional, and you have to own really um, your future in terms of uh, your ability to uh, create a living, create value. And, and not be not be relegated to obsolescence. One of the one of the points that I I want to make right at the beginning is that I think. Typically in Christian workshops on work, there's a big emphasis on you know you really need to have character. You need to work hard, be honest, have integrity, play well with others. You know all of this sort of thing, because the assu- fundamental assumption is that business is bad, they're all corrupt, and if, you just, if you'll be a good person, you'll really stand out. Well, I'm here to tell you, really, that those sorts of things I consider just basic citizenship values. If you don't have them, don't even apply for work. <laughs> okay? And every company I know of that I work with, and I've worked with hundreds now over the years, <clears throat> all screen people for character and work ethic and things like this. And so to to come to the game and say, I'm a hard worker, I have great character, you can trust me, I have integrity. Yeah, but probably every one of your coworkers does too. You know, maybe you have a little bit more, but it's not enough. Because basically having those things is just the price of admission. You know, that's what you gotta have to be able to come to the dance. And if you don't have it, then you, you don't last long anyway. So as a Christian, we have to think in beyond kind of the simplistic ideas that if I, if I have good character and I work hard and I have integrity, you know, and I'm, I'm faithful and all of those things, then I'll be a really valuable employee. I'm thinking, well, that's what you're looking for in every employee. So it doesn't make you distinct in that regard. Mm-hmm. So I'm, what I want to share is what I feel like you need to have beyond the foundational things like that. So let me just ask you real quick, what do you think that you do then? What do you think that you can do beyond your character and hard work to set yourself apart? As you're being interviewed, as you go to work? Work smarter, work creatively. Smarter, more creatively. Okay, what else do you think? Okay, okay. How many of you are in the workforce right now? Let me just see. Okay, so we got kind of a 60 40 mix, maybe 70 30? Okay. What else? What other things? Yeah, Chris. Okay, so you're, you're taking the initiative to develop yourself, stretch yourself, get better. You know, okay, what else? What else would you think? Yeah?
1: Remember, increase your knowledge in your field and also
0: beyond. Okay, in your, and then when you say beyond, what do you, what, what would be some of those things? Um, like, you're open for, um, yeah, for you are in, in mechanics, we also open for software development. Okay, okay, it's, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So, let's do this. Um And, Ina, could you guys start <coughs> a I would say I'm going to give you seven imperatives here and we're going to kind of fly through here but just to think about this a little bit. Um, I think the first one is I think and, and you're probably on track on this because of your of the nature of, of the, your generation but I think one is that it's imperative to broaden your awareness and view of the world and, and what I mean by that is a couple of things. One is that, I mean, we have a, we have a very uh, diverse mix here in terms of people from around the world. And many, how many of you have studied in, or worked abroad, even? See, and that's, that's a good thing, thank you. But I think that, I, think that one, I said that the initial, the initial stage of what was going on was, was globalization. And I think that what you wanna do is, in terms of thinking about your profession, you have to think about your profession from the standpoint of what's going on from around the world that's affecting your profession. You know, I think that the medical profession is being impacted by the development of the medical profession in India. And and it's interesting, you know, where does you know when you think about the degrees. My understanding is that I think in the last couple of years that the United States has graduated something like 65,000 engineers across the U.S. Whereas India has graduated like 250,000 engineers and China has graduated 350,000 engineers. And how important are engineers and I'm just kind of a pat on the back to the engineers in the crowd, how important are engineers to the economy? Pretty important, aren't they? And so in terms of kind of the the race for smarts and the ability to compete, you see, you see that your profession can be challenged from other parts of the world very quickly. So I think think in terms of the global piece. And so one thing that I I really encourage you to do is to study the trends in the shape of the future. I'm I'm always surprised that we don't we really don't we are not really looking at what's going on. And yet, I think scripturally, you know, that we are, we are called to be people who understand our times and who understand kind of the shape of the forces that are kind of creating the future. So, you know, I would encourage you to read broadly and to be thinking about it, not only within your profession, but, but around and, and, and have kind of a zoomed out macro view of the world more of what's going on. How many of you have read Kevin Kelly's book, The Inevitable? Kevin Kelly was one of the first founders, Uh, he was actually one of the early pioneers in the internet, Uh, was the founder of uh, The Well, which was an early uh, internet community site, and and he's been writing about technology forever, and he's he's as much a crystal ball for the technology industry and the future as anything else. The Inevitable is a book that he came out with about a year ago that really talks about 12 technology trends that he's not just speculating about what's gonna happen, He said, these things are already in place, and they will change the nature of our world. And here, I'm not talking about understanding technology to see what the technology will do, but he's talking about what's going to happen and how it's going to affect society, how it's going to affect how we live, how it's going to affect how we communicate and interact. And for Christians, it's important for us to understand those things, because they're going to have direct consequences in behavior, how we build community, how we influence, right, and how, and how you're going to do. The second thing I, I would say is though, as you, look in the, as, as you look at these trends, is to see the opportunities. A lot of times we get overwhelmed by these things and view them as threats, but we should see that there are opportunities in these things. Opportunities to communicate, opportunities to interact, opportunities to do things uh, both in work and ministry that we've never had, and, uh, you know, before. But you, at the same time, you want to be aware of the risks and dangers. So, I would say, look, be looking at, at the world. Now, let me ask you this: What kind of resources do you use to be informed of the world, about the world, and where it's going, and what the trends are? Yeah, YouTube. YouTube, okay. Generally or selectively? How do you do that? Um, what do you look for on YouTube? I, I
1: actually keep up to date with um, um, AI and, and software development. Okay.
0: So there's like a couple people that I follow that talk about cool. things like like that. Uh, self-driving cars are not, you know, right. uh, an option, but like an eventuality, they will happen and things like that. Okay. Okay. What are some other things? World news. What's that? World news. World news. Okay. What else?
1: Literary magazines.
0: Literary magazines. Okay. Okay. Yes, sir. Books. Books. Any particular kind or? I'm reading one right now on exuberance. Um, okay. I'm yeah. Economic professor. Yep. 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 Good book. What else? Yeah. Podcasts. What's that? Podcast. Yeah. I think, in particular, I would say cultivate sources that are broad. We tend, to, we tend to kind of cultivate sources that are pretty narrow rather than, uh, rather than sources that kind of inform, stretch, shock us a little bit. And, and I, w- I, would, I would encourage you to be broad in that area from, from technology to economics to sociology, you know, to, to other trends and things like this. I, pr- I, probably, I probably track about 150, you know, through my newsfeed to kind of stay Uh, abreast of kind of the edge of things that are going on. Think about the professions that you're in, and I know we've got got everything, what are some of the major trends that are impacting the companies that you're working for, or maybe the professions that you're in that you're beginning to to kind of think about and and look at and say, that could be a game changer for us. What do you think? What about those of you that are in your company, yeah, go ahead. Right. So like I can tutor people internationally. Right. And stuff like that now. Right. Yeah, I I think the training and development education system is getting ready to have kind of really a major shakeup in terms of the way things are learned. What else? What else are you seeing? Just kind of, this is kind of a random piece here, but yeah. Surge of lifestyle diseases, and that's and that's and in certain types of economies and cultures, right? Yeah. What else do you see? Yeah. 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 Well. This is a fun area to think about, and I know you guys will probably enjoy that. But you know, I, I would say continue to think about it. And um, even just last week, when I was in Chicago uh, on this uh, te- on this innovation in the digital economy, I, I, was just, I was just flabbergasted by some of the things that were going on. Everything from marketing and what's happening to brands to education to healthcare. They're saying that really the next platform that is being developed is the human body. And so there was whole sections on how people are hacking the human body uh, to, to specify your diet and exercise and everything by analyzing your genetics. <laughs> you know? And, there, and so you think about what does that begin to do not only to certain professions, but also what does that begin to do to the notion of what it means to be a human being. And so I think that what we've got to do as, as, as followers of Christ is that not only for the sake of our profession, but for the sake of be thinking about the questions that are going to be affecting our lives and, and, and the lives of our peers in the generations to come, we, we have to be thinking about these things. Because if not, we'll be overtaken by them, and then, and then we'll be trying to play catch up on that. The second thing beyond kind of looking at the world is what I call just me incorporated. Uh, Daniel Pink, and if you haven't read any of Daniel Pink's stuff, I would encourage you to get your hands on his work. But a few, a few years ago, he wrote a book called The Free Agent Nation, The Future of Working for Yourself. Um, uh, and basically, the idea there is that if jobs are obsolete, then what is, how do you have to approach your work? And what I tell young professionals all the time is that you cannot think of yourself as having a job when you come to work in your company. You have to think of yourself as if you were a professional service provider of one. And that you're under contract to this company to deliver certain value and to satisfy that customer. And if you don't, then you don't get that contract extended. But if you not only deliver that, but you deliver even more value, then, then, then you've got a future. But what happens is that everybody comes in and says, well, I just, just tell me what's my job. Now, if you were trying to get a contract with a company, is that, would that be your attitude? You know, if, if, if you were a business person of one going to do that, is that how you would approach it? No, you would be in there. And I think the idea is that everybody today is an individual professional services firm. Now, I think that's a great thing, and I think it's very biblical in the sense that do the scriptures encourage us to just do our job? No. Wherever a believer shows up, there should be blessing. There should be even more value created. There should be more understanding of how to serve the one that you're contracted with. And that's an attitude that you have to have to really think of yourself in business for yourself in a way. And I don't care whether it's in the medical profession or engineering or marketing or accounting or whatever. I think you have to have this idea of of learning how to kind of think of yourself as self-employed. And so learn how to create value and improve your company every day. Uh, I was doing a study of Toyota and it was interesting is that one of the guys was trying, there was a researcher that was trying to figure out what was, what was the genius behind Toyota's rise from the depths of World War II to his dominance in the world, global automotive industry in less than half a century. And so this guy was gonna study him and he wanted to go talk to the executives and said, no, 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 don't do this. Go and work for one of the big three first. Just work in the factory. So he did that and got you know at Ford or General Motors or something. So when he was finished, he said, OK, what next? So then they sent him to like a Toyota plant in Tennessee. And after he'd done that, they said, OK, now you can come to the mothership in Toyota City, Japan. And then he thought, OK, well, we're going to get to talk to these guys now and finally figure out what's the magic behind Toyota. And they said, well, no, we're not going to do that yet, quite yet. We want you to take your place over here on the, on the factory floor. And we want you to stay at this station here in the factory floor all day, and we just want you to observe, and at the end of the day, we want you to tell us how we could could improve that. So he, you know, he's thinking, this is Toyota, this is a world-class organization, so he's sitting there all day, and at the end of the day, he comes into the meeting with the managers, and he said, well, he's feeling good. He says, "Uh, I've got three ideas for you. So they, they interacted with them, they vetted the ideas, and thought, that's really good. We're going you know, to implement these things. Oh, and by the way, we had two other Toyota employees at other stations doing the same thing. They each came up with 25 ideas today. And in fact, our goal for you is to develop 50 ideas a day that will improve our company. Now in most American companies, I would say, it's really lucky if one bubbles up at the end of the year. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But The premise there, they said, was that Toyota doesn't hire people to work. We hire people to think. And I think that, again, shouldn't we as believers be the kind of people that show up and every day we create value and every day we deliver something that improves the organization that we're working in? Even if it's a little thing, it's an improvement, isn't it? And those things accumulate. And so we have to develop a a mentality of how do we deliver value every single day? And what's gonna happen, I think more and more in our world, is that you're not gonna be just given some sort of mundane routine job day after day. There might be some of those, but those will get replaced. More often than not, you're gonna be working on some team on a project. And and if you think about it like uh, a movie producer, your, your body of work is the movies that you produce. In the professional world today, your body of work, your reputation is really the projects that you've completed and delivered on. And it's called the project, I would just call it the project life. And so what I would say is learn how to go to work, deliver value, and then as you're given projects, if it's a, even if it's a small project, do something amazing with it. That was interesting with my daughter, Annie. She's working, and, and she's, she was given the responsibility for <coughs> handling all the marketing and, and sales for this company right, right out of school, and I'm thinking, that's pretty good. And her boss said, Annie, here's what I want you to do, and here's, his orders were, do something amazing. But you, know, you, think about, you think about the influence that you would have and the testimony that you have, as well as kind of the, the financial and career security you have, if your portfolio is full of just amazing projects that you've done. You know, because you're, you're showing how you can add value. You are your projects. And that becomes your brand. So let me ask you real quick here, how do you think your approach to work would change if you were me incorporated? What, do you, what, do you, what are you picking up on here? What do you think? Just your gut reaction here. What challenges you, you know? What do you think you might need to change? Yeah?
1: Well, it's something that I noticed, like, in school it's the same way if you're given in a So it's motivated by yourself because you have that self-motivation. You're going to do a lot more to grow yourself and your own company, and therefore you'll rise quicker versus. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, because when you're you're able then to kind of handle projects and be a person that's thinking about delivering value, how how is your employer looking at you? What are they thinking about you? What do you think? You're like Daniel. What's that? You're like Daniel. Yeah, he's the ringer in the audience back here. (laughs) I set him up good. No, (laughs) but I mean, what think about that? You know, if you were if you were employing people, if you were hiring young people, and they came in and they were professionally competent, but they also had this added thing about every day—not just working hard, but they've got ideas, and they're thinking about how to improve what they do and how to improve what the company does. And when you give them a project assignment. It's kind of like, it becomes kind of like a signature assignment, you know? It's kind of like, wow, you know? That just knocks your socks off. When we talk about working wholeheartedly as unto the Lord and not unto men, that's the standard I'm thinking about. That whatever we try, and it's not that you can do it with everyone, but with everything that you ever do, but what you're always shooting for is amazing. I mean, you think about it, that's the kind of work God does, doesn't it? <laughs> when he creates stuff, you go, you know, you did that. The third thing I think is that it's important to do, and I think companies are partially at fault in this because they don't explain it. But I think but I think that it's also incumbent on you to understand the big picture of why your organization exists. If it's a healthcare organization, or, like I said, it's a tax firm, or it's an engineering company, you know, or it's the corner bakery. Understand the big picture of what the organization is trying to do. Now, why is it important to do that? Why is it important for you to understand the big picture? You see how what
1: you're
0: doing contributes to the overall? Exactly, exactly. What else can you think? What do you think? How many of you, oh, go ahead. If you're going to make any
1: suggestions or improvements, you need to know what the clear win, what the purpose is. So understanding the big picture helps to identify like, what you should be trying to
0: improve. Exactly. Yeah, otherwise, everybody's pulling this way. And in organizations, when people don't understand what the big picture is, everybody says, I'm doing my job. But you know, is it really, is it really contributing, right? And so it's important for you to understand the big picture so that you understand how you are aligned with that and how you contribute to that, and what else you can do that really adds value. Because if you add value that you think is valuable, but it doesn't contribute to the big picture, then it's not really valuable. It's kind of interesting, but it's not, it doesn't really help. How many of you have seen uh, Simon Sinek's little um, TED talk on um, Start with the Why? Okay, a couple of you. I would encourage you, you know, again, it's typical, TED Talk, seven minutes, but, but I think that he makes a compelling case for why, how we have to understand the why of the organizations we work for, but I think you also have to understand the why of what you do, and it may be that you're, you're going to be in charge of a small group of people, and if you can't explain to them the why of what you're doing, it's hard for them to be motivated. Do you feel motivated in your work if you don't understand what in the world you're trying to do in the company? It just becomes kind of a grind, is not it? But when you see, then it's like, oh, you know? And so I think one of the skills that you need to have is not only to understand the big picture of the organization, do research and find out what they're trying to accomplish in this world. You know, and then, and, and then, and then kind of go there. And so what that, what that means is that you're developing what I, ca- I would just call a strategic mindset. And I think that if you don't have that, what's going to happen is that you're going to, you're going to be really, <clears throat> you're going to, you will end up, I think, being chewed up. <clears throat> but if you have a strategic mindset of the big why and you're understanding, okay, how I can make value, then I think all of a sudden you really are very, very, you become very valuable to the company. And I think part of this, too, is that you have to understand the model of your organization. And, I, again, I, this, this may seem kind of like, you know, crazy. But I'll, I'll ask people a lot of times in their organization, and I've asked it from a nonprofit side as well as for a business side. I'll say, okay, how does your organization work to, to create value? How does it make money? And, and I would say that most of the people in the organization don't have a clue. I don't know. I mean, I, got, I have this job. But they don't understand how the thing works. And yet I find that in organizations where the people, if, when the people in the organization know how it works and how it creates value, then everybody's a lot more energized because on a daily basis, they can see that they're making this thing work. So, that may not have been your education, (laughs) you know? You may have been studying, you know, anthropology or something like this, but you have to understand the model of the organization that you're gonna work for so that you understand how it has to run in order to be successful. Does that, you follow me on that? Um, Because you also have to understand where your organization might be on its curve and any organization you're going to go to work for in the future is going to be somewhere on a life cycle you know so you could be in a startup phase you could be in a growth phase you could be in a maturity phase and you may be going for work at an organization that's here what does that mean about the future of the organization <laughs> right and so unless the organization recognizes this and getting ready to jump the curve a second time you know you may be seeing that you're in an organization that's like this. So, you know, I just whatever your responsibility is, it's, it's, it's good to have not only a macro view of the world, but also a macro view of the organization that you're working in. And then that way, you know, again, coming back to this over and over again, you know how to give value to the organization. Because if you're seeing some of these things, because of your perspective, you may be able to provide insights that help the organization understand what's coming, what might be disruptive. Now, the other part of it is that you're probably going to go to work initially in organizations that aren't going to listen to you either. (laughs) But that's okay. That's okay, Because what you've got to do is that you've got to continue to practice and develop these skills, because your future depends on it. So, the fourth thing I would say is, and you've already alluded to it, is that you can't ever, ever stop learning. It was Gandhi who said, live as if you were to die tomorrow, learn as if you were to live forever. And. so it's interesting that um, one, of the, one of the most popular workshops that I do is, is, is a day-long workshop on the leader as a learner. And a subset of that is that's probably the most requested thing I was sharing with the staff earlier today is, is a workshop then on how to read a book. <laughs> and you'd think that that would be clear, but the fact is that outside of school, most people don't read anymore. They might expose themselves to certain media, but that's not the same as reading. Um, Eric Hoffer, you know, is a philosopher. He said, "In a time of drastic change, it's the learners who inherit the future. The learned usually find themselves equipped to live in a world that no longer exists." So when you think about it, you're learning is just beginning and your appetite for learning has to be greater in the days ahead than it is now. Right now you're kinda, you're doing required learning. <laughs> in the future, you've got to, you've got to keep learning. And, and, and one of my favorite um, thinkers in the area of create, creative thinking said that, a guy named Martin Neubauer said it's, it's a competitive world and the best way to outrun your competitors is to outlearn them. So, now I'm not just talking about organizational competitors. Are you going to have competitors for your jobs? Right? And it's not a matter of knocking down your competitors. We don't do that as Christians. But, like Daniel, can we be 10x better? Well, you know, let's let's hope for at least maybe 2x, okay? (laughs) But it was the learning, right, that he had. And and that's kind of of our standard. And so just understand that whatever knowledge you have has a use-by date on it. It's going to expire. And and, and as fast as things are changing, you're going to have to change even faster. An interesting book that I would encourage you to read is one by a guy named Cal Newport. And and his title he borrowed from... um, an interview that, that he had with Steve Allen. Steve Allen. They were asking Steve. I mean, not uh, Steve Martin. What What was the secret of his comedic success? And he just kind of chuckled and he said, "Well, he said he had to work at it." And he said he just basically had to be so good that they couldn't ignore him. And so the title of the book is so good that they can't ignore you. And and it, and it really says that part of part of being good at something, is being able to master the fundamentals of the domain that you're in. It's really relating to a lot of the stuff that we have. It's not the stuff that you get in school, but it's the ability to work in an organization, you know, to deliver results, and all of these other sorts of things that, uh, that aren't t- typically taught. So I would encourage you that this is maybe something to think about. So develop professionally. Develop your gifts and abilities. And then I would say this. When you're thinking about your own personal learning and development and you're taking stock of your strengths and weaknesses, where do you normally focus your attention? On your strengths or your weaknesses? Your weaknesses, right? Well, almost all the research in development says that people that focus on their weaknesses get weaker. And the people that really make the contribution are the ones that understand their strengths and really build their strengths into towering strengths. So what do you do with your weaknesses? Hire. What's that?: Hire Hiram.: <laughs> Well, I mean, there's, there's, probably, there's, some, there's probably some basic competency level, you know, that you have to have. You, know, you have to have at least a C grade probably in some of these things. But the other part of it is that's when you know how to collaborate with others, because you really know how to defer, you know, and say, you know? this is not an area of my strength, I can do this, but if you really want it, let me work together with Chris over here who's really strong in that area, you know? And and so that you learn, and it's like the body of Christ, isn't it? Working together. And it's the same thing in your professional area. And I would say here too, I I would encourage you to learn both to work in terms of mastery and breadth. And what I mean by that is, (laughs) These these years you're in college, are you focused on breadth of knowledge or mastery of of a more focused area? How has it been for you? What's that? Breath? Breath? Okay, what about that? Breath? Mastery? Mastery? Yeah. A lot of you are in pretty highly specialized areas, right? (laughs) Um, One of the things I find, though, is that I think over my life, I realized that I'm the kind of learner that if, if I didn't feel like I was pretty competent about something, I, I would have a hard time doing something else or trusting somebody else if I didn't know as much about what they were doing <laughs> as they did. And it really made me a terrible leader. And so when I was in my 20s, I kind of recognized that. So one of the things I started doing to build depth in in my professional life, but as well as breadth, was that I would take a different topic and focus on that topic for study for about three years. And so in three years' time, it wasn't like I became a Ph.D., but I knew kind of where the boundaries of the the domain were. I knew who were the seminal and leading thinkers in that area, and I knew what what the, the core ideas were and I knew what was fad in fiction, and what was truth, what was repackaging, and what was original. And um, and, to that, and to that degree then, um, what I did was that over time then, over the career, as I focused on different areas for in-depth study every, every two to three years, that over the course of the next 20 years, let's say, I began to develop not only a breadth of understanding what was going on in my world, but I had depth in it. You see what I'm saying? And so in order to achieve that, <clears throat> I, I had a, I've had a habit since, since those days that probably reading about 100 to 120, 150 books a year in a focused way. And so that, um, so that I'm, I'm, I'm staying current <laughs> with, with my field. I'm staying ahead of the game as much as I can and I also understand the things that are adjacent to it and attack it. So I'm not saying that my pattern should be your pattern, but what I want to do is challenge you to never stop, and never stop investing in yourself in learning. You know, there may be times where I might have skimped on, well, on other things, but I never skimped on kind of personal development education. And so there's a lot of ways to get mastery today you know your reading may not be the way you learn maybe it's going to be video maybe it's going to be audio maybe it's going to be talking to people whatever it is but i would say you should have a learning objective all the time uh, after you've gone from school to keep yourself current ahead getting deeper and broader any questions on that real quick here though yeah Some of them were kind of professionally driven because I realized what happens a lot of times, I think where's my marker here, is that when you come into, a, um, you come in and initially when you're, let's say you start out, you, you're hired because there's going to be some sort of technical skill that you're proficient at and say, okay, that's what you want. But as you move in, in your career, What's going to happen is that unless you kind of stay, say, like a rocket scientist, the chances are you're going to move into, because of your professional proficiency, you're going to move into a role that's going to involve people. It's going to involve the organization. And so what's going to happen is that your your professional technical skills are going to go like this. And the importance of, say, management, learning how to manage, which is kind of the business model and the organizational piece is going to go up. And as you get better at that, it's it's gonna be the leadership piece, which is all about people, strategy, culture, organization. And what I find is that a lot of people can't make this transition. Because was anything that you did over here in terms of your education and training preparing you for any of this? Probably not. So what I did was I went and I thought, okay, I need to learn I need to learn things like um, marketing and sales and communication. I need to learn about strategy. I need to learn about innovation. I need to learn about uh, cross cultural uh, uh, communication and interaction. There's just a lot of different areas like this. And I was also working from the standpoint of scriptural studies, too. There were certain certain biblical themes, I thought I, I need to have a biblical root in some of these things. So it's not just kind of secular knowledge that I'm pouring in, but it's also underpinned you know, by um, that. So this is why I think that if you think about your life and career over time and how it's going to progress, especially if you're successful here, it's going to put more pressure over here. And yet this is an area you're not prepared for. To run the organization, you know, to lead it, and uh, anyway, you had, a, you had a question behind you? Yes, sir. Just
1: uh, the sheer number of books that you're reading, um, are you choosing like 15 books on marketing and 15? Like what, how many do you read on a specific topic?
0: Right it, you know, I, it, I don't have a fixed number on that. What I try to do is I try to find, I think, the most seminal core ideas. What I find, especially in, in book selling right now, is that most of the stuff is repackaging. And, uh, and so then they'll th- and then think, okay, that was a waste of 100 pages for like, you know, one paragraph of an idea, but somebody's trying to promote themselves, right? So one of the ways I do that is that when I read, I usually start with uh, the index and the bibliography because I'm trying to see where, where, whose ideas are they building on? And then I begin to track those things and I think, oh, these guys all kind of keep coming back to this guy <laughs> or this lady. You know, and I begin to see where, I, where, the, where the true thinking emerges, and I try to figure out where those are and read those. And so sometimes there's not that many. Other times what happens is that you read those, and then there's ideas that build off of them that I'm interested in, and then I, I begin to collect those. So I don't have a set number.
1: Yes? So back in the day, there's the idea of being a Renaissance man where you learn from multiple fields and that ultimately comes <coughs> as a whole because they cross-pollinate them. Different, essentially, I have from different fields cross So in your experience as you go through these different widths and breadth, like um, what are some examples that you've seen that really different disciplines cross-pollinate with each other?
0: I, I, you, you almost can't think of a discipline where that doesn't happen anymore. Mm-hmm. So I think that you think about think one of the leading, Um, creative, design, innovation companies in the world is IDEO in Palo Alto. Uh, Are you all familiar with IDEO, I-D-E-O? You know, and it's interesting that, you know, they hire basically people that are polymaths. You know, you think, oh, you want to just hire engineers, but man, they've they've got people from unbelievably diverse disciplines working together because they need kind of the perspective of all these disciplines that are coming in. And I think Google does the same and other organizations. And so um, I think that um, I see that the companies that are doing the best in terms of attracting, retaining, and developing talent are ones that are looking for that. I feel like my direct value to this organization is the fact that I have probably the most outside-in view of of, of anybody of the 15,000 people. Because I've worked in multiple industries Multiple disciplines, and so when I come in, I've got a whole different perspective on the organization than anybody else does. So it's a way of staying fresh, you know. Otherwise, what happens is that you just kind of get isolated, you get insular, and and your and, and your thinking and perspective and it all gets stale. So I, I'm just appealing to you, you know, to keep learning. What's what's what is the definition of a disciple? It's a learner, you see? So the essence of it is, uh, the essence of our lives really should be that we're not only learning about God, but we're also incredibly aware and astute about what the world is. And then we're taking all of this incredible knowledge and creativity that God gives us and learning how to, how to deliver value to serve people. You, you, fo- you follow me there? So fifth thing here and we're going to we're kind of going to we're kind of roaring toward the time here. Um, it was a little bit like this morning's message, but the idea is that you this is a heavily networked world. And so I would encourage you now and forever to be building your network inside and outside your organizations. N- nowadays it's it's almost more important who you know than what you know. And the other part of it is that it's like the company that I'm working with right now was a client of mine 15 years ago when they were first starting out on their leadership journey. And then, you know, i had finished work, I'd gone off and had started another company, had worked in another consulting area, and then just one day, out of the blue, the CEO of the company called me up and said, hey, how the heck are you doing, <laughs> you know? And then he invited me to come out and speak to the groups. And I said, wow, you've got a real challenge here. This company's grown so much. So Russ being Russ, next week I had a job offer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he just acted like that, you know. And, uh, and, I, and, I, and you'll love this. I asked him, well, what's the job description? He says, whatever you think we need to do. <laughs> Don't you love that? You know, that, that, that's trust that's built over the years with, you know, and, through, and, and, and having a relationship even though we had long stopped doing work together. And so you never know about these connections, so cultivate your relationships. Not, not in a, not in kind of this, um, and, and, and I'll tell you that true networking is not the number of people that you're connected to on LinkedIn. You know, it's not, it's not a collection of followers, right? It really is about the people that you're, you're talking with, that you're engaging with, saying, you know, what are you learning, what are you doing? You know, how can I serve you? And you're staying connected. And, 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 I th- and so keep doing that. And I think you need about five or six different kinds of people in your network. The first one really is, as we alluded to it this morning, is what I would just call your 10, 24, 25 network. It's for Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. And these are, these are that, that small band of people, those two or three people that are going to be the folks that are going to encourage you, sustain you, hang with you through thick and thin, you know, like Daniel and his three friends. I think we, we need that, those kind of people in our network. A second a second type of people in our network, I think, are collaborators. They may not work in your organization, but what we're finding more and more the way business organizations work is that the organizations move forward and achieve things through collaboration. So it's like when I, when I had the idea to do this event in Gettysburg, I, I put in a call to one guy who put me in touch with another guy, and the next thing I knew I had a team of people coming out from West Point and things like this. And and then, you know, after it's over, we go back, but we've got this ability to collaborate in the future. Now, what's, what's really cool, I think, about your generation is that you've kind of grown up learning and operating that way. I mean, I used to watch Annie, you know, collaborating on homework, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, she's at home, but she's got Skype open, and they're talking to this group, you know, these folks here, and they've got, you know, other things going on and they're all interacting on homework and things like this. And there's just this natural um, push to kind of socially interact, socially learn, socially help each other. And organizations are starting to do that. One of the things that's accelerating our organization is rather than having top-down learning professionally (laughs) is that we're, we're creating horizontal communities of practice so that If somebody, you know, that has this HR issue over here can say, hey, what what should I do? There's somebody over here that says, this is exactly what you do. You know, we just did that last week. And so organizations are learning that way. And if you don't have that kind of collaborative skill or collaborators in the organization or from outside the organization to help you think through things, you'll you'll be behind. Uh, A a third type is just mentors. And I'm not... (sighs) Let me be careful on this one because I've heard, I've heard people that are talking about the mentoring thing say, look, you see all of these gray-haired people around here? Yeah, okay. And all you young people, you need to connect with these gray-haired people because you need mentors. And I'm thinking, absolutely not. <laughs> because in most of the organizations I'm working on, it's those gray-haired guys that are getting in the way of the future. <laughs> they don't know, they don't know how, they're already the ones that are taking the organization over the backside of the curve. You know, it's not like they've got the ideas that we need for the future. And they don't know how to develop a younger person because they don't even know how you work. So it's not to say that all gray-haired guys, okay, so I can give myself an exception and Neil and John an exception here. <laughs> But I say when you're when you're picking mentors or thinking about mentors, there are there are mentors that are kind of life mentors. They're the ones that kind of the spiritual whole life mentors. But we need different kinds of mentors along the way for periods of time. You know, so I'm encouraging some of the older guys, what you really need is some twenty somethings to mentor you. And what's happening in terms of trends and business models and technology and you know, how do you, and, and in terms of, okay, how do you recruit? Because it's, I'll do exercises where I'll divide up people by generations, and I said, I want you to develop a college recruiting plan. And then they come back and present it, and it's laughable <coughs> how different the generations would approach a college recruiting plan. So think about the mentors that you need to help you develop professionally. You know, and they don't have to be in the organization, but seek people out. And it's amazing how you can approach strangers who you've researched and thought they really know something? My daughter did that as an artist, and she would call up somebody that she really respected their work and said, "Could, could I come talk to you?" And they were like, "Come on, you know, I'll teach you what I know about the craft." So seek mentors. I think think uh, think through thought leaders. That kind of comes back to the reading. I think in any kind of field or profession, there are people that are just genuine thought leaders. It's, you know, that they, they affect how a field of thought goes. And so I think as you read, you'll begin to recognize people, and I would say try to link to the to thought leaders so that they can stretch you and challenge you. And then the last one here is I think you just need some crazy people. And what I mean by that is that you need some people in your life that when you bounce that idea off them, they're crazy enough to say, you know, you should go for it, and they've got your back. We live in too much fear that we can't do things, and so sometimes you need kind of a band of crazies that says, we can do the impossible, you know? And so, I, you know, and so I think we should be that way to people, you know, to embolden them and, 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 and encourage initiative and innovation and 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 daring, and and we need it sometimes too, because we might have an idea, but our own own courage flags, right? And so we need that. Um, So, you know, think about, where does my network need to grow and improve? That's the question. Then six is, I think, that you need to really develop, learn to develop others, and you're already underway if you're involved in discipling others. But one of the things that I think that's really important in the work today, and it's happening in the work world, <clears throat> is that the development of people is becoming front and center. McKinsey did a study a few years ago, and they said because of the generational shifts and the size of the generations changing, he said that every, every company in the world today is in a war for talent. Have you heard that phrase? Yeah. And the idea is that businesses of tomorrow are not going to die because they have bad strategy. It's just that they're not going to have players to put on the field. And so I think that one of the things that, you, that will create value, that you'll be able to create value in is that as you come into an organization, and I don't care the nature of the organization, if you have the ability to develop people around you, and if you have the ability to replace yourself, that's job security. It used to be, well, I can't teach this young whippersnapper what I'm doing because if, if I teach him, then where's my job go, right? And I'm thinking, no, if you, th- if you, th- if you become the person that can't be replaced, then you really, are, you really put the organization at risk. The most valuable person in the company is the one that can develop others and develop capacity, develop the talent that's around them. And so think about translating your discipling skills into the ability to develop other people in their roles. And so I'm always asking people, what are you holding onto in your work that someone else needs to learn? You know, what can you do to accelerate the development of people around you? You know, in a small sense, if you're leading a Bible study, what can you do to accelerate the development of somebody so they can lead that Bible study? But at work, it's the same thing, right? Then the last piece here is I would just say, be what I call leaderful. How many of you view yourselves as leaders? Okay. My contention really is that everyone is a leader. Maybe not in the sense of power and a role, But if we understand that leadership is fundamentally about influencing others toward a goal, a common good, even if you don't have anybody working for you, are you going to be influencing your peers and your colleagues? Are you going to be influencing your customers or your clients, your patients? Are you going to be, you know? And so what I I would say here is work to develop your leadership skills the communication, the ability to influence, the ability to persuade, and the other part of it is just own your own influence. What do you think I mean by that when I say own your own influence? Yeah.
1: Servant or something, but in reality, like you do have influence
0: on people. Exactly. You, you, you are not neutral as you move through the world. Any contact you have is influencing people one way or the other. You know? And so I would say own your own influence and recognize mm-hmm. that when you're around people, even for a short period of time, you have the opportunity to be. Um, a spiritual influence, a positive influence toward, you know, the goals of your organization, the culture, the values that you stand for, or you can be a negative one. I don't think there's anything in between. And part of, part of what, I think, part of what you need to learn to do in terms of learning to lead is also leading without authority. A lot of times people feel like leadership is about authority. When leadership really is about the power of your ideas and the power of the way you interact with people and the examples that you set, my role is really interesting because I have nobody that reports to me. I have no decision-making authority, no hire and fire authority in the organization and yet my responsibility is to influence 15,000 people to go that direction without any of those things. And and we're seeing it happen. <laughs> and so understand that leadership is not about a position. You may have one. Leadership may be about authority. You may get that. You know? You may have the power to pay or not pay or whatever, but I think ultimately leadership is about the quality of your life, your ideas, your ability to persuade, your ability to create a vision. And I would say learn and work and learn to read and think about those things in leaders like that. And ultimately, that's what a servant leader is, isn't it? So um, I would say along that line, too, though, I, I just had a couple of closing thoughts here is it comes back to Daniel a little bit. I think we're in an age where we begin to define life as content. In other words, who are you? And you'll point to what you've posted on Instagram, Facebook, (laughs) you know, and other things. And, And so what you're telling people is this is who I am and it's life as content. When the scriptures say, no, it's life as wisdom and grace. So coming back and reinforcing the themes of the conference, you know, in an age of content, develop wisdom. And the second thing is I think that I've had, i just say this in closing because of several conversations that we've had this week. I think that you all need to develop a robust theology of work I think that one of the things that was concerning to me, I think, in a lot of our conversations is that I think that we have a really low view of work. And as a result, we've really limited the strategic options that we we are open to under God. And what I mean by low view of work is how many of you feel the tension that if I'm really committed, I'm going to give myself to people and I'm going to minister to people. And, and work is something I might have to endure, but if I can leave the world of work to go do that full time, then I'm, uh, you know, I'll really be focused on my calling. We, that's, that's been a historical issue. And, and, and so as I've shared with several people here, I think through the week, I say one, just fundamentally, when you see God in the scriptures, in Genesis one, he's working. And when he creates humans, what's the first thing he does? He puts them to work. Now toil, the drudgery that comes, that's a result of the sin. But when we work, you know, we say we're created in the image of God. We are so closely aligned with the image of God when we're working. It's unbelievable. But what we've done is that we've, we've, we were denying that aspect of our lives. And then when God sat back and looked at his work, what, did, what was God's evaluation of his work? He said, oh, Lord, he's good, that's good. And it was all working together, he said, that's very good. And he also said it was beautiful. And it was, and it was totally, it came out of the wisdom of God, so it was also true. And so, um, in closing, I'll just say this. Uh, and again, pardon me if I've, I've repeated this at a couple of the meal conversations. Some years ago, I was reading an article that was published in the Smithsonian Magazine by a German writer that had been, um, think, uh, had, it had come across him that that there was a resurgence of Bach's music in Japan. There was a revival of Bach. And it was kind of like, Japan, Bach, you know, what's going on? So he went over to japan and studied it and he found something else that was surprising and what surprised him were the number of people that were coming to christ as a result of listening to bach and he said what how does that happen and the japanese would say well bach taught us that god is love bach taught us about the glory of god now if you know about Bach's history he was considered a second-rate musician in germany but everything that he wrote, he wrote with an unbelievable devotion to Christ because all of his, all of his scores of music were signed Gloria to the glory of God alone. And he would take the scriptures and meditate on them. And as a reflection of that meditation and devotion, he would, he would write music that would express those things. And then hundreds of years later, people in Japan, which is one of the most unreached countries in the world, We're coming to Christ as a result of listening to his work. And I thought, the gospel according to Bach. And then it hit me. Why not the gospel according to education, architecture, accounting, you know, medicine, engineering? What if in every one of our professions that we worked in the way God, would, God has worked, to design a world that's good, true, and beautiful. And that we took our profession, and we thought, let it be deeply infused with a passion for God and, and, and the truth of God, and create something that has those qualities in it. And then how would people feel? You know, we look outside in this unbelievable nature and we see the work of God, and without a word, we learn about God, don't we? And what if every believer understood that that was the potential that their work can contribute to the world in terms of drawing people to Christ? When I was at Glen Erie, you know, it's a hospitality industry, basically, and it's, it's brutal. The hours are brutal, the work is kind of dirty, You know, you got minimum-wage people, you know, and you're you're cleaning bathrooms and rooms and washing dishes. And people were struggling with the meaning of that and how to be motivated by that. And we got to thinking about that one day and said, you know, and I'm, I'm talking with the dining staff, and I said, you know, what is Christ doing right now? He says, well, Revelation says he's preparing a banquet feast for us. So what if we ask God In our work, that when we prepare a meal for our guests, they get a taste of what it's like to sit down at the banquet feast of Christ, that they're experiencing the warmth, the hospitality, the creativity, you know, the delight. And you who cleaned rooms, what is God doing? What is Christ doing right now? Well, he's preparing a room for us. So how about we, we decorate and we clean and prepare the room so when the guests walk into the room, they feel like this is a taste of what it would be like to walk into a room that Christ is preparing for us. Now, what if we took that spirit into all dimensions of our work? And at the end of the day, we had that kind of quality of work that we could offer it up to God and say, what do you think? And he'd say, that's good. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That is so true. Hallelujah. That's, that's the potential of our professions, and that's the potential of our work. And you think about that outside of sin, one thing that all human beings have in common is that we work. <laughs> and what a way to connect and express the glory of God. You want to pray for us? We'll go.
1: Dive in into just work. Um, Dan, I'll um, thank you for his wisdom and his experience to share with us. And um, Father, we ask that you help us each to be faithful servants of yours. That, that that when even now on campus, as we work through our assignments, our group projects, that we'll be a witness for you. And then when we go out to the work, um, the workforce, but then whatever we do whether we eat or drink, or no matter how little that task is, that we do it for your glory, that you are our ultimate boss. So Father, I ask that you continue to help the men and women in this room um, to grow, um, to really get a grasp of what work is. Um, and Father, that we ask that we continue to learn from your words and learn from yourself as well. Um, Father, we continue to pray that as the night continues, as the week continues, Father, that we'll hold on to these words. Father, that at the end of the conference, that we would just not would not just forget about what we have learned and but that we would apply it to each of our lives. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Father, we, we, we love you and we ask that you continue to help us to get closer to you. As pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks, guys.